You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the NC Insider, here with Lauren Horsch from the Insider and Will Doran of the News and Observer. And if you're lucky, we might even be graced by the presence of Andy Spay later in the podcast, but that remains to be seen. Uh, we've got a uh, recap this week of the legislative session that wrapped up around oh, 10 o'clock or so on Thursday night. Uh, two-day session uh, in October, the latest in the series of uh, brief sessions taking place uh, after the official uh, long session ended uh, back in the end of June. So uh, lots to talk about of the things that they did and the things that they did not do uh, during the two days uh, that lawmakers were here in town in Raleigh. Uh, And then we'll have a little fun in the uh, second part of the uh, podcast where we'll talk about um, our 2020 picks for uh, fantasy election matchups. Some people play fantasy football. We're really nerdy, and we play fantasy politics, so we'll do that. Uh, we'll uh, have our own picks as well as some of the picks that folks on Twitter uh, submitted to me the last uh, couple days. Uh, so let's start out uh, with the session. Um, highlights, uh, Lauren and Will, of uh, what uh, went on the last couple days? There's so much to choose from. Uh- <laughs> So one big thing that was talked about was uh, newspaper public and legal notices, um, and that came basically from a bill, House Bill 205, which Governor Cooper had previously vetoed. That did not come up for a veto override. Instead, they did some procedural magic and turned it into a local bill to avoid Governor Cooper having to sign it or veto it. Yeah, because they apparently didn't have the votes for the override. No, they didn't. Um, so, um, so this, this is their, a handy way to get around that. It's magic. Uh, so they, they, they had their workaround. And so what this bill does is it allows Guilford County, it's only specific to Guilford County, uh, so they can, you know, vote on an ordinance to allow local governments or, you know, city, county governments to not have to post their public notices, public hearing notices, legal notices in the newspaper. And so they can just put that up online So that has come under some fire by uh, the North Carolina Press Association as well as uh, local newspapers there. If you're uh, avid Domecast listeners, you'll know that uh, the Jamestown News uh, basically said this bill would, you know, kill the newspaper. And so the News and Records publisher was there at a couple of hearings this week to talk about the impact of what this would mean for the newspaper as well as how many people in Guilford County don't have Internet access. Uh, So that passed in both the House and the Senate, so it's law now, Um, and it had a one-vote margin in the House. Yeah, that was the the biggest surprising, was it ended up being more of a nail-biter than you normally get on a local bill that's sponsored by Republicans. Yeah, so that was, it was really interesting because you had a lot of, I do believe it was 11 Republicans who voted against the spill, and it was mostly Republicans from rural counties. Josh Dobson was the first one. And he's from McDowell County. He was the first uh, Republican lawmaker to stand up and speak against this bill. And he basically said, you know, there are so many, you know, residents in his county that don't have access to Internet. It's an aging population. They need the newspaper. They need these notices in the newspaper to know what their local government is doing. So it came down to a transparency issue for a lot of these rural lawmakers. So that was very interesting. And then in the Senate, it was a party line vote. Uh, Trudy Wade the senator from Guilford has been the one 
championing this bill, you know, not only this bill, but then its previous iterations and House Bill 205. And just for years, I think she said this goes back to five years ago when she first introduced it. Yeah, it was really a statewide bill, but it wasn't able to yeah. get through as a statewide bill. So she turned it into a local bill that was attached to a not State, local bill. Yeah. So Cooper had the opportunity to veto, which I guess was maybe a strategic misstep on their part yeah. initially, uh, because the statewide bill was something about uh, workers' comp for prison inmates, inmates yeah, yeah, which was not controversial at all. And so that uh, is going to be a, a sort of casualty of the change in approach and the fact mm -hmm. that the votes weren't there to override the veto on this. Mm -hmm. Well, you'd have to imagine it's probably not going to be replicated statewide if even this just local bill that really only affects one paper could barely get the votes to pass. Well, it, it could, though, because they're they're advertising it as a pilot program. So they're saying this, this Guilford County bill they're going to look at it and see how successful it is and then maybe come back in later sessions and say, oh, this county, you can do it too. This county, you can do it too. So, I mean, in the next... And it may years, become a piecemeal thing of where legislators that aren't getting along with their local newspapers will say, yeah. oh, you, you want to write another nasty editorial about me? Well, uh, we got a local bill coming at you, Ash County. Yeah, so, it, I mean, Ash County probably would not because Jonathan Jordan... Yeah, he sounds like he's a big he's, fan of his local newspaper, yeah, and that's was, why he was against the bill. Yeah, so but, he, he spoke against the bill as well, but... I yeah, think so he's, he, he said, what, 50% of people in his county don't have internet access or it was some shocking it, had, it was a higher like that. number that i did not expect because even in guilford county they were saying about 25 percent of the county doesn't have internet access or reliable internet access yeah that's the interesting issue with this is it's uh, it's billed as sort of the rural ne papers need this more rural communities need it more because the ability to get internet access in those places is not that great but then you have urban areas where you could conceivably get internet access, but the question is whether enough people can afford to have it at home and then would have access to these notices. Now, granted, you can make the argument, too, that if you can't afford internet access, a subscription to the news and record is probably not in your family budget. But, but I mean, also imagine if you're going anywhere, you can probably find a newspaper. I mean, most places, most workplaces I know that I've worked in have had newspapers, whether it be a restaurant or an office job. So you can still... Yeah. Library has them for free. I should uh, make a shout out to the library. My uh, wife would give me crap if I didn't uh, point out that libraries are a great place to get free newspapers. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but it is an interesting point in that, uh, and I think I'm going to make this in a column I need to write this afternoon, is that the, you know, having it in the newspaper then can probably get it into sort of a word of mouth situation. Mm -hmm. So if it's something that affects your neighborhood that your city council is doing, if one person sees the notice in the newspaper, then that's good enough for, you know, them to then tell their neighbor who tells their neighbor and then everybody who's concerned about this can have the opportunity to weigh in. Well, even anecdotally, I grew up in a very rural town in Minnesota and the newspaper was always out at the bar. So my dad would read the local newspaper. We didn't subscribe to it. Don't yeah, that was bad. We didn't subscribe to it. But he would go down to the bar and read it, and then all the guys would gossip about what was in it and say, like, oh, did you see what the city council wants to do? Oh, we should probably go to that meeting. So it is, it becomes a word-of-the-mouth thing, and, you know, it's in rural counties, in rural communities, it's a big part of life to just sit down and read the newspaper and gossip about it. Yeah, absolutely. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes from here. Uh, I think the local governments in Guilford would still need to actually adopt local they ordinances them, to yeah. change this. So we'll see if there's any sort of pressure on the local end for them just to not do anything with this bill. Yeah. Um, Senator Wade did say there were some, I do believe High Point, High Point is in favor. Guilford County government, yeah. conspicuously absent from her comments, whereas the Greensboro City or, Council, yeah. so they may not be so for we it. So we might see Guilford County pass it, and then you'll see probably High Point get on board with it too, but we don't, yeah. we don't And what's know interesting yet. to this, and I think it's sort of been left out of the debate, is the 
large number of legal notices that aren't placed by local governments. They're placed by attorneys who are required to do some sort of foreclosure notice or estate sale or divorce notices. Yeah, divorces, things like that that you just have to put a notice in. Um, and so in a sense, the government's doing something that Republicans often don't want to do, which is taking business from private business on that sense, because if uh, Guilford County, say, opted to do this, they could also sell legal notice ads to the attorneys and members of the general public who have to do these mm -hmm. legal notices for legal proceedings uh, and put it on the county website instead of in a newspaper. Yeah. So that's where I think uh, particularly that Jamestown paper that you mentioned, uh, they get a lot of theirs from the legals because um, I think they have like the lowest rate for attorneys in that county, even though it's a small paper that probably doesn't go countywide. Um, and so that's a larger portion of their business model than it is for some of the bigger papers. So that's another aspect of that to watch, but that's probably more than you needed to know about newspaper legal notices. So we'll move on from that. Uh, we had two veto overrides this week, uh, House Bill 56, which was the uh, Gen X contamination funding bill, uh, coupled with the repeal of the Outer Banks plastic bag ban and a couple other provisions as well uh, in that that fairly quickly cruised through. I think that was one of the first things uh, the legislature did when they uh, rolled into town on Wednesday. Uh, so over uh, ruled uh, Roy Cooper on that measure. And then the other one was a little bit more obscure of a bill. It was Senate Bill 16, which was yet another environmental regulatory bill, uh, had some, uh, I guess, marquee provisions about local governments and uh, how much they can control uh, stormwater runoff issues with developers, obviously something developers probably would have wanted. Um, but certainly nothing that uh, Roy Cooper can get great talking points out of because it is kind of esoteric. Um, so that's that. And then the, uh, I guess one of the big debates of the week was the judicial redistricting and uh, judicial primaries bills that uh, went through. Um, and those were pretty interesting. Uh, I listened in. Uh, the judicial redistricting debate went on for several hours last night. Uh, it's been interesting to watch sort of the, the process roll out in that because you have uh, State Representative Justin Burr, a Republican who's pushing this plan and seems to be the you know sole architect of this massive redraw of uh, district court and superior court districts in the state. Um, but then he's been working with local attorneys and with some, even some Democrats, to uh, let them make some kind of minor tweaks to it. Uh, a lot of the amendments that went through this week were related to residency requirements. So I think a lot of the counties that were being coupled together as a new judicial district were concerned about, is there going to be a judge from my county who lives in this county and is part of our community? Uh, and so there's some residency requirements that are uh, likely to keep that uh, status quo in place. Uh, Burr's making a pretty big case that he's uh, not going to unseat or shorten the terms of uh, incumbent judges, uh, but still a lot of concerns from Democrats about uh, dividing some of the urban counties in ways that are uh, clearly intended to make it more competitive for Republican judicial candidates who could run in a chunk of a county like Wake or Durham or Buncombe uh, or Mecklenburg instead of uh, having to run countywide in a county that, that leans more to the left. Uh, but that wasn't the huge surprise. We kind of knew that uh, judicial primary, uh, judicial uh, redistricting bill was going to go through the House. Uh, the Senate opted not to take it up this week. They will come back at it in January when uh, they seem to be viewing that the sky is the limit for what they might do in terms of uh, judicial races. 
Yeah. Well, one thing they won't be doing in January is impeachment. So. We oh yeah, we should note it. that that yeah. uh, with the departure of uh, Representative Chris Millis. Uh, impeachment is off the table. Uh, Lauren, you and I were talking to uh, Senate Rules Chairman Bill Rabin uh, on Thursday, uh, and he said basically the reason that's off the table is Chris Millis is not in office. He was the yeah. one who wanted to do he it. Would, he wouldn't admit who agreed to take this out of the adjournment resolution, but he did say that it was a mutual agreement to get rid of impeachment. So uh, Chris Millis is no longer a representative, therefore there's no longer a threat of impeachment. Yep, so. and Elaine Marshall can, uh, I think she can call off the attorneys. We had a story in The Insider this week uh, from some of the Western, one of the Western North Carolina papers where uh, Elaine Marshall was uh, noting that she was uh, hiring lawyers to defend herself and was uh, even getting a few donations from Democrats to help her out. But it uh, sounds like she won't be needing that uh, and she's safe to get through the uh, the rest of her term without impeachment. Uh, but that leaves more room in January when they come back to talk about uh, judicial redistricting as a possibility, but also a change in judges' selection. Uh, that popped up a little bit in the Senate debate on um, uh, another election bill that uh, went through this week. Uh, this bill started out, it's called like the Electoral Freedom Act, uh, originally actually filed by Senator Andrew Brock, who, speaking of people who are no longer in the legislature, is no longer in the legislature. Um, <laughs> But it was a bill that uh, basically made it easier for uh, unaffiliated candidates to get on the ballot. The petition threshold of how many signatures you had to get uh, will be reduced as a result of this bill. Uh, it also makes it easier for third parties to qualify for uh, North Carolina's ballot based on being in on the ballot in a number of other states. And uh, most interestingly, uh, of the non-controversial provisions is one that uh, would lower the threshold for avoiding a second uh, primary, a primary runoff. So currently, if, you, uh, if you're in a race with a bunch of people um, for a primary seat, uh, you have to get 40% of the vote to avoid a second primary. This would take it down to, I think, 30%, uh, which uh, would reduce the number of these extra elections that hardly anybody shows up to. Uh, but the big surprise in this was an addition in the very final stage of this bill's process as it was coming out of conference committee, uh, and that is the uh, elimination of judicial primaries in 2018, uh, which is going to result, uh, assuming it doesn't get changed between now and then, and uh, they can override what we assume will probably be a governor's veto on this bill, uh, means that a lot of people could be on the ballot in uh, November of 2018 for judicial races, everything from Supreme Court down to your uh, local district court seat, because there would be no uh, a primary to sort of uh, weed out the field. The last time this happened, I think there were 19 Court of Appeals candidates, uh, and the person that won had all of about 20% of the vote, which was, uh, even with 20 candidates, was a surprisingly high number. Um, and the rationale for that, um, we kind of got different answers about it, because initially it was billed as, uh, this is to help with the judicial redistricting process. If we don't finalize that until January, we don't want a filing period for primaries in February. And if we move the filing period to June, which is what this bill does, uh, then you don't have as much time for people to uh, go through the primary process first, so it makes sense to just go straight to a general election. Uh, but then several people pointed out that if you're just looking at judicial redistricting, you're not going to redistrict the statewide races, so why include them with not having a primary if you're running for Supreme Court or Court of Appeals? And uh, in the Senate, uh, Senator Ralph Heiss, who was running this bill on that side, pointed out that uh, they're looking at a wide range of options in January, including this idea of a judicial selection model where perhaps the legislature would be appointing judges instead of electing them. Uh, he also mentioned bringing back the idea of judicial retention elections, which is something that's been struck down in court. Uh, so clearly the Senate's thinking sky is the limit for uh, how they handle um, the uh, judicial selection process when uh, January returns. So we can expect uh, lots of interesting debates out of that and uh, already seeing lots of uh, 
uh, critiques from Democrats who are accusing Republicans of canceling elections, which I'm not sure that uh, eliminating a primary is the same as eliminating an entire election, uh, but that's going to be the rhetoric we're going to be hearing for a while. Uh, other thing that popped up this week, appointments bill got a little bit more interesting than it might have otherwise. Uh, Lauren, you wrote about what was not in the appointments bill first. Uh, so what, what, what was uh, going to be maybe in there but did not show up in there? Yeah, there's some people who were very much hoping for two appointments to the State Utilities Commission as well as the State Board of Education. Uh, both of those bodies are going to be hearing some important cases. I know the Utilities Commission will have Duke Energy rate hikes. Um, and then the State Board of Education is obviously doing a lot of stuff anyway, but there's also the discussion of charter takeovers for some low-performing schools. But uh, Governor Cooper had appointed um, these four individuals back in May. I don't remember their names off the top of my head. Um, but so those appointments came in May, and he has they have yet to be confirmed or even you know voted on. Um, and so that might come back in January, according to Senator Rabin, but we'll see. Yep, and uh, I guess the most notable name in the appointments bill of people who did get uh, confirmed is uh, Jim Womack of the uh, Oil and Gas Commission. Uh, Will, you've written about uh, Mr. Womack a few times. What's what's the situation with him, and why was he needing to get reconfirmed, confirmed, however it worked out? Yeah, I've been writing about him since back in uh, probably five years, back when I worked at the Sanford Herald, uh, when he was a county commissioner down Just there. Just can't escape old Jim. <laughs> And um, but no, as you mentioned, he uh, he was a member, of really uh, integral member of what used to be called the uh, Mining and Energy Commission, um, which then went through all sorts of legal challenges um, back around oh gosh, 2014, I suppose. Um, now it's called the Oil and Gas Commission. But basically, this commission is in charge of. Uh, making the rules and enforcing the regulations for fracking in North Carolina. Um, you know, fracking hasn't really been in the headlines for a few years, but back around 2012, 2013, 2014, it was this huge, huge debate. Um, and, you know, people thought that, you know, there's going to be, you know, huge drilling sites all around Chatham and Lee and Moore counties, which is basically where all the natural gas in the state is. Um, uh, Jim Womack was a big proponent of fracking, um, and uh, he uh, he also recently this summer ran for the uh, I, I believe the chairmanship of the yeah North chairman Carolina of the NCGOP. He he ended up losing to Robin Hayes, who was the incumbent in that, but he sort of yeah. positioned himself as the non-establishment candidate uh, within the Republican Party. I think leads the Lee County GOP, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he's definitely at least a de facto leader, if not the actual leader. Um, he's He's been very, very involved. He, he kind of, you know, led the initial Tea Party resurgence in that part of the state. Um, but he is back on the Oil and Gas Commission, um, oddly enough, in a seat that is reserved for an environmentalist. Um, you know, by law, these commissions say, you know, this person gets to appoint this many seats and, you know, one will go to, you know, a member of an oil company and one will go to a geologist and one will go to uh, you know someone who represents a conservation interest um, and they gave uh, the seat for conservation interest to Womack who I think it's fair to say is certainly not an environmentalist um, he is you know uh, a yeah, big, so uh, yeah it comes down to I guess your definition of conservation interest and he's member of some kind of group um, yeah that... one of my uh, former colleagues down at the Sanford Herald wrote about this they called up Phil Berger's office and asked him so what what conservation group is he representing and uh, was told that he is apparently a board member of the American Council on Science and Health um, which 
for some reason lists him as a medical doctor, even though he does not have an MD. Interesting. So there there's some issues with that too as well. I, I'm not really sure what's going on there. Um, yeah, that sounds interesting. Probably worth the follow up story from someone at some point. Uh, but yeah, but, yeah. So but, it's but, just kind of kind of odd all around. Um, but also joining. Uh, uh, Womack back on this commission is uh, former legislator Mike Stone, also from Sanford and Lee County. Um, he was really heavily involved in the writing of a lot of the fracking bills uh, that later became law back in, you know, around 2012. Yeah, and then he lost his reelection bid at one point in kind of an upset yeah. race. I don't know if that would end up being an issue in that. I can't quite remember. That but. was part of it. There were also some issues like we've been hearing for years about. Uh, uh, well, we were talking about earlier today, uh, local bills that a lot of people, you know, felt was kind of uh, infringing a little too much on local control. He ended up losing to a Democrat who then served one term before he lost to a different Republican, John Sauls, who is, you know, now in the General Assembly. Um, but um, so I don't know if this means that uh, Mike Stone is attempting to make a political comeback of any sort or yeah, just if, getting back in that fracking game or if he just wants to uh, to deal with fracking. Um, but, uh, yeah, our, our, my, our colleague here at the News and Observer, John Morowski, has been writing a lot about uh, some of the, uh, the the gamesmanship going on with the fracking commission recently and, you know, whether or not they can even are allowed to meet legally and, you know, all sorts of things. So it it's getting back uh, into gear. I, I still haven't really heard of anything about any, you know, leases being... You know, yeah, I feel like the pressure for natural like gas fracking kind of diminished a little bit because there was a little bit less of an economic pressure interest from companies in North Carolina, but uh, that, of course, could change, and um, there could be more for this commission to do. Uh, yeah. Thanks for that, Will. We've got one last thing on the session uh, before we move on to our, our next segment, and that's the what was billed uh, at the beginning of the week as a budget technical corrections bill, but ended up not all of it dealt with the budget, uh, not all of it dealt with technical corrections. It was just kind of ended up being this 22-page catch-all for uh, things that legislators wanted to uh, get through this week. Uh, the original House version had a change to the class size requirements that were sought by a lot of the school districts that said they were having trouble uh, meeting a mandate for lower elementary school class sizes. That ended up getting taken out uh, because the Senate didn't like it. Another thing that uh, sort of got taken out was a funding for a study of state government property in downtown Raleigh to see how costly, how disruptive it would be to move state employees out of buildings and sell the land to build the soccer stadium. Uh, that uh, was deemed premature by Senate leadership, so it uh, now is just a study of downtown property without any funding attached to it and without any specific reference to a soccer stadium. Um, but then the uh, final bill, version of the bill did have some other things, uh, including uh, most notably some uh, tweaks to principal pay to address an issue that was going to cause some principals to actually uh, get to see a pay cut uh, based on a new formula uh, and also uh, a controversial measure mandating uh, Attorney General Josh Stein not to direct certain cases to district attorneys, something that he has apparently been doing uh, since his budget was cut by the legislature uh, because he has less staff over there. So there's a lot of uh, debate over how much staff does uh, Josh Stein actually have, uh, what's the role there. There's some talk of uh, constitutional 
uh, questions surrounding uh, Stein's uh, ability to delegate some of these tasks. Apparently, there is a provision of the Constitution addressing that. So uh, one can expect that issue is uh, not done and that uh, we could see a lawsuit out of that at some point. Uh, so that's pretty much the rundown of uh, this week at the legislature. But I uh, wanted to get to a little bit more fun segment this week. Um, Lauren and I have been talking uh, in our long hours in the press room and getting a little bit loopy about uh, 2020 picks um, for sort of a kind of a fantasy politics uh, world uh, for North Carolina elections. So we're going to ask the, our, our various panelists to uh, give us your, your matchups, uh, one Democrat, one Republican for the 2020 general elections. Uh, we can do incumbents. We can do races where the incumbents decide not to run. So, uh, Lauren, you want to start with governor? Yes. So my picks for governor are super lame and boring, but Roy Cooper versus... Wait for it. Dan Forrest. Oh, wow. Oh, Revolutionary. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> I, never going to happen. Oops. There we go. Because um, Dan Forrest doesn't already have endorsements lined up in a uh, fundraising committee called the Run Forest Run, Run Club, Club, which I totally mistook for a running club where you go for runs with Dan Forrest and was disappointed <laughs> when I realized it was just for his campaign supporters and there was no running involved. No, no running, thank God. But, um, yeah, so those are my pick for governor. All right, Will, you got picks for governor? Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it would be really interesting if we saw a an intense Republican primary for that. Um, it, it looks at the moment like, you know, things are have kind of cleared out of the way for, you know, for Forrest to pretty much be the nominee. But I mean, he has been running for like over four years. Yeah, he announced <laughs> in 2015, I think, that he was going to run in 2020. Yeah, or um, they formally launched the campaign, but he's only hinted at it. Right. Um, and but I, I think it would be fascinating if uh, you know if you saw him get primaried by some other pretty prominent politician here. Um, you know, I, I think for a while people had said, "Oh, oh will Phil Berger run?" I, I don't know. If yeah, he that's would that's or who not, I've got but... written down. I've got Cooper versus <laughs> Phil Berger. That's one. You the, the rumor keeps popping up whenever Phil Berger sends out a big glossy campaign mailer. Um, I think probably the most likely reasoning for that is that he's raising money for the Senate Republican Caucus. Uh, but it fuels this discussion of would he run for governor and I strategically it wouldn't make sense for him to run for governor because that's basically saying like I'm basically the CEO of the state why don't I demote myself to like the you know a shareholder who doesn't really have a whole lot of power but can kind of say some things yeah he can do a lot of he can do a lot in the senate so I wouldn't I wouldn't personally see why he would want to run for the governor only reason I can think of and this is why I've got him in my picks is so much of Phil Berger's rhetoric is aimed at sticking it to Roy Cooper that like Four years of him doing that, followed by then he just gets him unseated and prevents him from a second term. Like, that might just be... The ultimate the, power grab. Yeah, sort of just what he's leading up to. So that's why I've got him in my list. So let's uh, move to Lieutenant Governor. This is a little bit more of a wide-open race since uh, Dan Forrest, even if he didn't run for governor, would be term-limited out of another run. So, Lauren, who you got? So I'm going with uh, Greer Martin for the Democratic candidate, and he is a House member from Wake County. And then Sarah Stevens for the Republican uh, nomination, who is a House member from Surrey County and the current uh, Speaker Pro Tempore. Okay, and we have heard some rumors about Stevens. I don't know yeah, if there's so any truth I, to them. I don't, I don't know if Caveat, any... <laughs> I'm spreading rumors that we don't know, have not confirmed in any yeah, way. I mean, but <laughs> people have whispered around the building, maybe maybe she should run. And I think it would be great to see a woman run for lieutenant governor. I'm all for it, obviously, so... I think that'd be a great pick. 
Yep. All right. So I've got. Uh, I'm, I'm going a little obscure with my picks for lieutenant governor because <laughs> lieutenant governor is in a sense an obscure office that doesn't do a whole lot. Uh, but uh, I'm going with the battle of the up and coming uh, Greensboro area politicians. Uh, Democrat Cecil Brockman, a state representative from that area, uh, one of the more uh, vocal young uh, African American lawmakers in the House, against uh, another House member, Representative John Hardister, a Republican uh, from Greensboro, who is also considered to be sort of uh, a young and up and coming politician. And l- lieutenant governor is often a good place for folks like that, so I wouldn't be too surprised if you saw uh, this particular matchup. Uh, Will, who you got for lieutenant governor? Well, that's interesting because Hardister was one of the ones who was double bunked in the new redistricting. Yeah, he's going to move, I think, in part because he guess yeah. he doesn't own his house, and he was like, well, if I if I go to eastern Guilford County, I've got a better commute to Raleigh anyway, so that he didn't have to run against, I think, John Faircloth was the other yeah. representative yeah. in the same yeah. district. So maybe he'll just keep moving east until he's, he'll you know, moves into the lieutenant governor. Surprise! No, I... I I think a good race would be, um, I think you could see somebody like Chad Barefoot, a senator who announced that he'd be stepping down, deciding, you know, in 18 months from now that he misses politics, wants to get back into it. Come back in the Senate and get to hit the gavel at the front of the room. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So I think you could, you know, maybe see, if not him, someone like that, you know, because we've seen a number of resignations this year or, you know, people announcing that they're not going to run for re-election and, you know, statewide race like that, especially, you know, since there are no really established candidates. Could yeah, prove and Barefoot's young, so it's hard to see him getting out of politics forever at this age. Yeah. On the Democratic side, um, uh, the mayor, maybe former mayor at this point, of Spring Lake, uh, Chris Ray. Oh, yeah, who ran, who ran in, for Senate. Yeah. yeah, ran for Senate in 2016. He's a really charismatic guy. Uh, he's got a good resume. He's been a mayor. He's an yeah. Army veteran. In the National Guard, I think, was recently tweeting photos of himself headed to Puerto Rico to help out down there. Oh, really? I missed yeah. that. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I, um, I I expect we'll be seeing a lot more of him in state politics. Um, he's a pretty young guy as well. And yeah, I think the Democrats were year, yeah, but, but they, the Democrats were interested in his candidacy, but they by that point pretty much already decided that Deborah Ross was their candidate, and yeah. uh, so he didn't get quite the support that he might have otherwise had the Democrats not already settled on who they wanted to run. Exactly, but I I don't know if it'll be Lieutenant Governor, but I I think we'll be hearing that name again in 2018 or 2020. Let's move on to uh, Attorney General Lauren. Who you got? So I have. Josh Stein, the incumbent, versus relative newcomer Danny Earl Britt Jr., the senator from Robeson County. Um, if you, you probably don't know much about Danny Earl Britt Jr., other than he's got a lot of names. Um, Solid but, Robinson, <laughs> Robinson County name, I think. <laughs> but he's, he's an attorney and I do believe former college football player. I need to redo my research, but I remember looking him up because one time he came to a Senate session wearing green pants and I do believe house slippers. And notably, he was part of a pretty yeah. big Republican wave in Robeson County last year. He yeah. defeated an incumbent Democratic Senator Jane Smith uh, in kind of an upset uh, election there at the same time that uh, Donald Trump carried the county, the first Republican in, in many years to do so. And he's been a very active freshman lawmaker. He's entered dozens of bills. Um, and he was also very vocal about the Hunter's Bill of Rights constitutional amendment, which we might see come back up at some point. But he's been very active. He's an attorney. He could do well. So. All right. Uh, Will, who you got for attorney general? Um, you know, I, I don't see any reason why we won't see a rematch of 2016. Um, uh, Buck Newton returns? 
He has been in the Senate chambers recently, I will say that. Yeah, I've seen him around the building. Yeah, he, I mean, he's got a great name for politics, you know, uh, you know, not as many names as Danny Earl Britt Jr., but <laughs> a good name. And I don't know. I, uh, I mean, it was a real close race. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, having Cooper on the ticket really helped Stein a lot, I think. But, uh, you know, I, th- I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if Buck Newton thought that, hey, you know, I've... I had a shot last time, and you know, I'm, yeah, I'm it was close-ish, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I've got for that. Uh, I'm joining you in, in uh, putting Stein as my Democratic candidate. I don't think anyone's seen any signs that he wants to uh, not run for re-election uh, to AG, at least until the governor's mansion opens up. Um, but I think he'll be running against Republican uh, Senator Dan Bishop from the Charlotte area. Uh, Bishop uh, came up to prominence back when he was in the House. He was the lead sponsor of House Bill Two. Uh, and was one of its vocal defenders throughout House Bill 2's life. Um, He's also uh, a very vocal politician, very critical of the media, very active on Twitter, very critical of me, um, in in sort of a a way that, (laughs) in a sense, almost reminds me of our president. So, you know, to the extent that uh, the Republican Party is uh, continuing in the, the Trump vein. I think Dan uh, Bishop would be a, a solid candidate uh, from them for that point. Um, Andy Spade just joining us. You got any ideas for uh, candidates for Attorney General uh, in 2020? Are we talking predictions or who we'd like to see? Fantasy teams slash Fantasy predictions, teams. yeah. Oh, gosh, <laughs> that's a tough one. Uh, I assume Josh Stein will be there. Um, let me think. You know who would would be interesting to see come back from the, uh, well, abyss of politics? What about someone like Kieran Shanahan for Republican? Obviously, not the same Major Republican donor, briefly served as McCrory's Secretary of Public Safety. Right. Prominent attorney, um, but he doesn't have the name recognition like someone uh, like Buck Newton. So, um, who knows? Plus, he's from Raleigh. I don't know if he would get those... uh, Wilson County vote. Yeah, and since you just jumped in the middle of this, anybody uh, else you're eyeing for governor or lieutenant governor since we already did those? Eyeing? I would love for Coach K to run for governor. Um, oh, that would be fun. I think he could turn the state around. Was I'm he a Republican kidding. or a Democrat? That's a good question. Like yeah. He, he was in Orange County, I do believe. So. Okay, yeah. Voter registration's public, so we can get us out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. What was the other one? Uh, lieutenant governor. Lieutenant governor. Because that's the wide open race, so if there's any anybody who wants to go statewide who's maybe a little bit more obscure... Um, Anybody, I mean, you covered Raleigh City Hall for a while. Anybody on the Raleigh political scene that might uh, think the lieutenant governor was a good slot for them? You know, it wouldn't surprise me if Stacey Miller, one of the new, he's not on the council, but he's running for council, if he, uh, and he's an attorney um, with some name recognition. It wouldn't surprise me if he went for it at some point. Um, Let's see, who else? I think Nancy McFarland, the mayor, or... uh, Former soon to be former city council Marianne Baldwin would ever jump for higher office? Hmm, higher office maybe. Uh, if you su- asked whether they would go for lieutenant, uh, lieutenant governor, they would roll their eyes at you. I know that. <laughs> um, it wouldn't surprise me to see uh, Marianne Baldwin go for something. Um, I don't know if lieutenant governor would be her thing. Maybe it would. Yeah. Uh, Nancy is unaffiliated, but obviously leans left. Um, you know. I wonder if she would look at what uh, how Charles Meeker's campaign went for labor commissioner and see that as sort of a sign that you know being popular in uh, in Raleigh doesn't necessarily doesn't equate to name recognition around the state, especially if you're you know a low key mayor like both Meeker and uh, and McFarland. How, however, she has a lot of money, so that could help. Yep. 
Right. Uh, last in the list. Oh, unless Lauren, do you oh, want to jump in on this? I was going to say update on Coach K voter registration. He is unaffiliated. Ooh. So uh, he can go the either mystery way. Mystery continues. Yes. <laughs> so last in our list of uh, uh, races to pick, U.S. Senate 2020. This is the Tom Tillis seat that will be up. Uh, Tillis has. <laughs> Uh, indicated that under certain circumstances he might not want a second term, so we don't know for sure that he's running. Uh, Lauren, who you got for Senate? Um, so it's going to be the it's going to be between two North Carolina senators, and I'm picking Harry Brown as the Republican Ooh. and uh, Jeff Jackson as the Democrat. Okay, so why Harry Brown? I know he's a powerful uh, budget chair, majority <laughs> leader, but he's kind of a low key guy. I, I don't know. Just something, just something about me screams. Maybe he can do Washington. So I, I just in in the back of my mind, I, I really think he could maybe branch out and try his hand at it being a U.S. senator. And he's got a nice, simple name, Harry Brown. So yeah, I, I, I still need to listen. He apparently owns a radio station in addition to a car dealership down in Jacksonville, and has his own radio show. And I need to listen to it one of these days and uh, see how he comes across as a, I guess, assume conservative talk radio show host. Um, but anyway, and of course Jeff Jackson, very well known. Uh, probably the best name recognition of Democratic legislators yes. because he's so active on social media. Well, and, and he now has 280 characters on Twitter, so. Yeah, so he's, he's, that, that's, you know, one advantage he'll have. Uh, Will, you, you got for U.S. Senate. <laughs> I, um, I I think we'll see Tillis run again. You know, he said, what was it, if if they didn't pass meaningful criminal justice reform, he was going to drop out. Eh, I don't know Yeah, about it that. sounded like it might be an idle threat. Uh, yeah, uh, but I think he's going to run again, and I think it'd be interesting to see if uh, Jennifer Roberts ran against him. You would have... Oh, you've got one of my picks, but... You would have an entirely Charlotte-centric race, and it could be completely bathroom-themed, because obviously Jennifer Roberts was, you know, the person really behind HP2. Tillis, of course, made national headlines for wanting to end regulations for, you know, having Hand to wash washing, your hands yeah. when you go to the bathroom <laughs> if you're a restaurant employee. So they could just be just arguing about bathrooms and Charlotte for the entire race. And then, you know, we'll have our, our next senator. Yeah. And then I've, uh, I'll jump in with that because mine are very similar. My pick was Tillis doesn't run and you get Pat McCrory versus Jennifer Roberts. Ooh, <laughs> a that's truly really HB2 focused race. <laughs> Andy, who you got on this one? Oh, I was just going to say with both of those, there'd be lots of poop emojis thrown around uh, <laughs> playfully and unplayfully. Uh, for Senate, I, I disagree. I do not think I, – I think Tillis will run for governor. Um, oh, interesting. That's my guess. Uh, and so if that happens, one name that I think would be interesting to see run for Senate is John Cain, developer – from Raleigh. Yeah, Republican. Republican. Really big Republican donor. Uh, very big donor. Also has, I think, advised a little bit uh, some uh, to some Republicans, including McCrory. Um, and so that would be interesting. And he's very reserved. He's not the type of guy you're going to hear talk about bathrooms. You're, you're not going to hear him talk about, uh, you know, uh, necessarily saying things about immigration or uh, touch on some of these more divisive issues. But... He, he's very well respected among Democrats and Republicans. Um, and he's got the money to self-fund a campaign. That's right. And John Cain. I mean, that's a yeah. good that's a good name, too. for uh, Citizen Cain. You right, know. right. <laughs> uh, for, I don't want to steal yours. Have you gone yet for Senate? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did you say Dan Blue, senior no, or said, the third? No, Senator Dan Blue was my other pick had I not gone with Jeff Jackson. No, I would go, I think Dan Blue... Uh, the Senate, uh, the, the son, third, yeah, the son who who would. ran unsuccessfully for treasurer um, right. this past year. Right, that's who I 
think would be yeah he's he's definitely viewed as an up and comer in uh, democratic politics and young articulate got some skills from New York and uh, working with his dad in the law practice plus the name is well recognized because the older Dan Blue's been in politics in North Carolina since the '90s maybe earlier right I, and who knows if if would I know uh, what's her name Jennifer Roberts from Charlotte Let's see what's her name I I can't I, I live in Raleigh so yeah you've already forgotten her name even though we were talking about her but like thirty seconds ago <laughs> I know that. Uh, she has the support of the HRC, uh, but if you're the Democratic Party, would you want to put all of your resources behind a candidate who's already failed? Um, yeah, that would be interesting for them. Um, well, before we uh, end this segment, I wanted to get to the Twix uh, picks that people offered up on Twitter when I did a little crowdsourcing on that. Uh, so from Michael Cooper, we have uh, Cal Cunningham for U.S. Senate. Uh, Cunningham is a former state senator who ran uh, for that office back in, I think, 2010, uh, losing in the primary to Elaine Marshall. Uh, Cooper also suggests uh, Alan Joins, who's uh, fairly well known as the mayor of Winston-Salem, has been for a while. Uh, Dustin Ingalls is suggesting uh, as a uh, candidate, a challenger to Tillis, Wake County Commissioner John Burns. Uh, and we should note, uh, before that rumor gets along, too far along, uh, John Burns has replied to this tweet uh, with simply a, a gif of, of uh, Ross from Friends saying, why, why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, other picks from uh, Corey Williams. She suggests uh, State Rep. Greg Meyer, a Democrat for U.S. House. He's certainly uh, fairly prominent and uh, active on social media from uh, Orange County. Uh, she picks Jeff Jackson for U.S. Senate uh, race and either uh, State Rep. Chuck McGrady, a Republican from Hendersonville, or uh, Representative Greer Martin, a Democrat from Raleigh uh, for Lieutenant Gov, uh, to which Greer Martin says he'd prefer Chuck McGrady, uh, which is interesting because <laughs> McGrady, of course, is there a Republican. And, yeah. <laughs> Uh, from Adam Wright, he suggests, not for any particular office, but uh, Dan Blue, uh, the older Dan Blue, uh, for something, as well as uh, State Rep. Chaz Beasley, who's a freshman Democrat from the Charlotte area, and uh, Senator Jeff Jackson, who's evidently a popular pick for a lot of folks. Um, and uh, Corey is also suggesting uh, uh, leadership uh, potential for uh, Representative Deb Butler, a Democrat from Wilmington, and, and Beasley as well. Uh, and finally, on this list, uh, I see someone named Bearded Crank also suggesting Jeff Jackson for U.S. Senate. And uh, from our old pal Brian Anderson, uh, a former NNO intern, still NNO freelancer, uh, he suggests uh, managing editor of the News and Observer, Dan Barkin, as his <laughs> pick for uh, elected office in 2020. So uh, we'll uh, leave the segment on that and uh, come back and do real quick on uh, Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. These are the sounds of someone taking their eyes off the road. Texting while driving is more than distracting. It's dangerous. Do us all a favor. When you're on the road, stay off the phone. A message from CTIA, America's wireless companies, and the National Safety Council. Welcome back to Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the NC Insider. Uh, and it's time now for everybody's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week, uh, where we pick our top uh, person in the news from the past week, and then I'll select uh, of our nominees uh, who's the best of those, starting with uh, Lauren Horsch. Lauren, who's your headliner? Um, 
I'm going to pick Senator Rick Gunn from Alamance County. He hasn't really made news this week for any particular reason other than he is probably UNC's biggest fan in the Senate. So he claims. So he claims. Um, biggest fan in, in North Carolina history, I think. So actually, he did say on the House floor, I am the biggest tailgater in the history of North Carolina. So Andy may have to fact check that later. Um, but he has this fun little rivalry with Senator John Alexander from Wake County, who's a huge NC State fan. So State was playing yesterday, so Senator Gunn had to wear a red tie and had NC State stickers on his face. And I, of course, made a joke. I don't think that's, you know, uh, dress code, but whatever. They let it go. Yeah, uh, I've seen a so. uh, jersey on the floor if you have a tie and jacket with it. Yeah, you, it, can, so. you can wear a jersey on the floor <laughs> as long as the coat is over it and you do have a tie unless dress code rules have been suspended. But it's, it's just fun to know that people are still having fun with sports and are okay with poking fun at each other. And then uh, if you're on Twitter, Senator Gunn also tweeted out a photo of himself in all of his tailgating regalia, including some flags on his white truck with UNC decals and uh, socks and a nice like Carolina blue suit coat. All right, Senator Rick Gunn in the hat for Headliner of the Week and possibly PolitiFact uh, candidate in a few weeks. Uh, Will, who's your Headliner of the Week? <laughs> Um, I am going to go with Representative Larry Pittman. Um, he, uh, I'm sure he's been our headliner before for yeah, some for of the various more... outlandish comments he's made about Lincoln it, and Hitler and guns it, and various things. Exactly. He can be a controversial guy, but on Thursday he uh, was, it was mostly notable for just being a really sentimental moment on the House floor. Um, uh, I believe it was... Uh, I don't, I don't know who started, but they were talking about uh, breast cancer. Yeah, I think that Mary, Representative was, Mary Belk. Uh, Representative yeah, Mary Belk. Belk was, she brought a representative statement to the floor to talk about Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and she most recently just finished up her chemotherapy for breast cancer, so yes, that's why she, she carried it. She proudly announced she's no longer having to wear her wig. Uh, <laughs> she looks fabulous, though. She's got a nice spunky haircut. So. Um, and she was followed up by Representative Pittman, who uh, spoke about uh, his own sister and uh, how he... Uh, lost her to breast cancer as well, and um, you know, you know, mentioned how she tragically, you know, found out about it and didn't have health insurance, and uh, passed away a few years later. Um, and it was just a, you know, b between the two of them, it was a, it was a real somber moment there on the House floor. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, really, you know. Those little speeches that representatives give don't often grab a whole lot of attention. Yeah, they don't typically get mentioned in the news, but it's, it's kind of a, a reminder that uh, legislators are people, too, even if you vehemently disagree with the things that they say and do as politicians, that they have lives and families and feelings and um, things that sentiments they like to express now and again. And Exactly. Yeah. I couldn't have said it better myself. Yep. All right. Larry Pittman in there along with uh, State Senator uh, Rick Gunn. Last but not least, Andy Spay, who you got for Headline of the Week. Did someone say PolitiFact? Yeah. Uh, you have been I, summoned. I am going to self-promote yet again, third week in a row. I, and I promise, <laughs> if I didn't, I only do it because I show up late and I don't get to yeah, promote Yeah, I earlier. was going to ask Andy about his PolitiFact earlier, but we'd already moved on to our uh, 2020 fantasy round before you showed right, up. Right, right. Well, uh, so – uh, I would say Phil Berger for uh, not only obviously being the leader of the Senate and a lot of stuff went down uh, on Jones Street this week, but uh, he, we fact-checked a claim he made that North Carolina has the strictest anti-gerrymandering standards in the entire United States. And coming from uh, <laughs> a legislature that has that's 
currently in court for gerrymandering, many people found that to be laughable. Um, but we looked into it because we wanted to know, you know, whether or not there are rules that are pretty, uh, pretty strict. Uh, these are things that aren't, you know, necessarily out in the public very often. But um, yeah, there are a lot of states that do a better job than than us, according to experts. So um, I was going to say uh, the false for that claim. Uh, we've heard it repeated a couple times now that North Carolina has one of the strictest standards in, in the world. Did Berger cite anything for where he got that claim? or uh, He cited the state constitution, which mandates that districts be uh, have roughly equal populations, keep counties to get and cities together as much as possible, and keep districts compact. Uh, he also cited a court case from 2002 that uh, sort of pointed to an equation that map drawers should use when, to determine compactness. Uh, but that, that equation is not in the Constitution, and it's not uh, a requirement, even by the criteria they used earlier this summer when they redraw the maps at the insistence of the court. Uh, so there are a lot of states that mandate compact districts keeping boundaries together, and uh, some go a step further, like Florida, and they and their constitution says that districts cannot politically favor uh, anyone. And so, and there are others that have stronger protections um, against ger- the type of gerrymandering that uh, helps incumbents and things like that. Some states like Arizona and California have rules or have independent commissions where uh, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have an equal number of picks for uh, this commission and the commission is tasked with doing uh, the map drawing. So there, I could not find, I, I must have called a dozen people um, from both ends of the spectrum, you know, experts, professors, asking, have if they've ever even heard North Carolina mentioned as having some of the strictest standards in the country, and they said no. All right, uh, Phil Berger in there for his uh, gerrymandering claim uh, up against uh, State Senator Rick Gunn and State Representative uh, Larry Pittman, whose name just slipped my tongue. Uh, So out of those, um, I think I'm going to go with Will for Larry Pittman, but I'm going to have Pittman share the crown a little bit on that because, as we mentioned, we were talking about it. Uh, the topic of breast cancer uh, awareness came up as a result of uh, Representative Mary Belk, who has uh, been uh, serving her first term in Raleigh at the same time undergoing chemotherapy, and uh, evidently uh, sounds like she's passed with flying colors. So for that, I think she uh, earns a, a piece of the headline of the week crown uh, as well. So uh, that about does it for Domecast this week. I'm Colin Campbell from The Insider here with Andy Spay, Lauren Horsch, and Will Doran. Thanks so much for listening to us, and we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.